0: For me, it wasn't so much about I need to be the best or I need to be the best in the world or my goal of becoming an Olympic champion for the sake of being an Olympic champion. It was just that each of the four Olympics in which I competed, they all presented me with four different challenges. And and I just kind of embraced the challenges and the more, you know, implausible or so-called far-fetched or lofty or whatever they seemed, the more I was driven to do them.
1: Welcome to the business of doing business. I'm your host, Dwayne Kerrigan. With 35 years in business and close to 30 ventures across 12 industries, I've seen a lot. Amid the celebrity allure of entrepreneurship, many exceptional entrepreneurs remain shadowed. Here, I team up with these hidden talents to unveil their challenges and successes. Dive in with me to unearth entrepreneurial gems, learn from our experiences, and get educated. Heather Moise, welcome to our podcast. This is a real, like, I've really been looking forward to this. When we first met you, you're elegant, you're beautiful, you're articulate, you're driven. Man, we're such fans of you as a human being. We were talking about this earlier, just before we started, but like, you're the first podcast guest I'm going to call a faker. I think you're a faker. (laughs) <laughs> and, and here's why I say that. So masters in occupational therapy, you are a four-time Olympian, two-time gold medal, Olympic gold medal Olympian in the world rugby hall of fame. You're an author your book is called redefining realistic, wonderful book. I skimmed it. I have to be honest with you. I've got, I bought it. I skimmed it because I've been, I've had some personal family stuff going on in the last three weeks. And so I didn't have a lot of time to read like word for word, but I am going to go back. I, th- I love it. It's, it's like, it's really, really good. Thank you. But the reason why I call you a faker, like if you Google and get on your website, I think this is like what you list on there is like a fraction of what is really who you are and who, what defines you. Like you find out like, I know you summited like the highest mountain in Antarctica. I did. Yes. With Canadian Armed Forces. You have the Olympian Humanitarian Award. You're like the Queen's Jubilee Medal. And apparently, I just found out you have a Heather Moise uh, <laughs> Drive Street named after you.
0: Oh, gosh. But I
1: believe I've heard, and I don't know. So I really would like you to explain to the audience there's way more medals than, than two Olympic golds. I think, is, there, is it true there's more than two Olympic medals?
0: No, from the Olympics, it's just two. But rugby, we have a silver from the Rugby World Cup in 2013 for the Sevens Rugby World Cup there. But that's it. No, four Olympics and two gold medals. Yeah.
1: Any world championships?
0: Someone asked me how many World Cup medals I had and I had to go to Wikipedia and I don't even know who updates that, but I had to go to look because I just, I don't hold on to that stuff. Yeah. So I can't even tell you. I can't tell okay, you. Well, not
1: holding on to it is better than me calling you a faker. That's yeah. a, a way better description, <laughs> by the way.
0: <laughs> yeah. Those are, I mean, we get these glass globes or trophies. I think there's a globe for like the overall kind of the whole season winner for points and, and stuff like that. So they're, they're different kind of things, but the yeah, other, there are some World Cup matches. So how many
1: World Cups just got to carry out? Do you know?
0: There are eight World Cup races every year. And then it ends with a world championships or an Olympics. So there are three world championships and then Olympic games. But I have competed in four Olympics, but I've only competed in six or seven seasons. We talk about the Olympics in terms of like four-year cycles and that sort of thing, but I've never actually done a four-year cycle. My first year doing it, the Olympics were five months later. It really had nothing to do with bobsledding when i made the decision i hadn't even seen a bobsled at the time but i ended up breaking one of their testing records and suddenly i like i went into that not being like i'm not doing this really i'm doing this to get this recruiter off my back i'm just going to go to the testing camp and so i went but because i broke a testing record amongst these people who were had been training for years and who were supposed to be representing us at the next olympics which were 5 months later i was like well, wait a second can I actually do this? Can I learn a new sport? Can I learn to do it well? And can I learn to do it well enough in time to maybe represent my country at the next Olympics, which were less than five months later? So for me, it was kind of like this implausible, like this far-fetched goal of, okay, yeah, that's probably unlikely, but you know, I want to see how close I can get. Five months time is a really cool way. It's not like you're, At the time, I was like, I'm not changing my whole life. I'm just kind of taking a little step out of it to address this challenge and see what I can do. So that was my first Olympic Games. So after that, I went back and finished my master's degree and just thought I'd be back to normal life, you know, normal in quotations, you know, and I went back, finished my master's degree. But when you come fourth at the Olympics and after four runs, after accumulating the time after four runs, which it, on the Torino track was 5.7 kilometers, 3.54 miles for any, you know, Americans who were listening after that distance, after accumulating those times, we missed standing on the podium by five hundredths of a second. So it wasn't just fourth, it was fourth by five hundredths of a second. So it was kind of the definition of so close yet so far away. And so I was just like, okay, well, I went and finished my master's degree. I have that now and the next Olympics are actually on home soil. So can I now, the challenge all of a sudden became, instead of just getting to the Olympics, which I just challenged myself to do and just did, you know, last year, if I go and train for three years, can I actually get on the podium and win a medal for my country? Like that was like the next challenge of seeing what I could do at the next Olympics. So for me, it wasn't so much about, I need to be the best. Or I need to be the best in the world or my goal of becoming an Olympic champion for the sake of being an Olympic champion. It was just that each of the four Olympics in which I competed, they all presented me with four different challenges. And and I just kind of embraced the challenges and the more, you know, implausible or so-called far-fetched or lofty or whatever they seemed, the more I was driven to do them. You know, after Vancouver, after we won in Vancouver, I, you know, went back to life, I guess. And that's when I started speaking, kind of got thrown into the speaking world and and started developing that and then was pulled back in for the Sochi Olympics. I was pulled in the year before the Sochi Olympics, except I found out I needed hip surgery. So I didn't actually compete that year. I didn't get back until the fall right before those next Olympics. So Again, one of the guys on the team kind of joked about me being like the Batman of the Olympics where I would just, they'd asked me to come back and I would just kind of descend on the Olympic season and just kind of go and, you know, help the team out that year to do whatever. So that's kind of what happened. And the same thing with Pyeongchang for Pyeongchang in 2018. Again, six months before the games. Well, they asked me a year before. I'll give them that. But I said, no, I wasn't interested in going back to compete. And then my former teammate asked if I'd go back and I wasn't interested at all. And then six months before the games, I got an Instagram message from a new up-and-coming driver. Her message was, "There's a lack of leadership in the program. And besides your former teammate, so my former teammate, uh, who's competed in the Olympics before, not one other person in the women's program has competed in the Olympics or has even been there. So, based on what I've heard about you, I think that you would be not only an asset to me and my team, but also the team as a whole, the entire Canadian bobsled team, like the Entire women's team, yeah. I was just like, man, she's now using my language in my business about impact. And it's not just about the push anymore, it's about leadership, it's about impact, it's about elevating somebody else. So I started thinking about it. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that although I wasn't motivated to go back to a fourth Olympics to just try and win a third Olympic medal, I was actually motivated by the idea of helping someone else get to the Olympics and potentially win their first. So I only agreed to go back if the Federation, if the, when the Bobsled Federation agreed to support me in my decision to only push a rookie, like to only push someone who'd never competed before. So my goal wasn't to go back and just to do everything I could to win it, to medal. My goal wasn't to get back in the Canada One sled again. My goal was, yes, to get back to be the best that I could be, but in order to help someone else with dealing with the stress and pressures of the Olympics and that sort of thing and help them be able to perform at their best and get to the Olympics. So it was a totally different challenge again. And I loved
1: it. So you didn't go back and compete with your previous teammate. You competed with this Yeah, with a rookie. Girl.
0: Yeah. And it didn't have to be the girl who invited me back. And I made that clear. I said, it doesn't matter, but I'll compete with any rookies. But my goal is to help someone so that I can help them deal with the pressures and stresses of the high pressure situations and the ins and outs of the Olympics and help get them into the mindset that it takes in order to perform under such circumstances. And my former teammate didn't need that. She, you know, she'd already competed and has, you know, two Olympic gold medals under her belt. And so I just wanted to help a rookie. I think it was a pretty powerful message too, that a lot of people took from that. But for me, it wasn't just about, not just about the top of the podium. So it was, it was pretty, it was pretty cool.
1: It's an unbelievably powerful message, and I'm not surprised by it. Knowing you, like you're like one of the most selfless people I've met, and I mean, we don't know each other that well, but like you're focused on others, not focused on yourself, and that so that story does not surprise me whatsoever when it comes to you, and you know your ability to contribute and and lead and help others and support them on their path. Uh, so congratulations to you. Thank you that's tough like to go the allure of winning mm. being a three-time gold medalist would be pretty tough to turn down for a lot of people
0: there were moments on the tour when it was it was very tempting because i am i i'm i'm not competitive because i want to be the best or to win i'm competitive it's kind of the same thing at home when you're playing card games with the family or doing whatever it's, it's not this like sore loser, kind of like, I'm going to win and beat you. It's not about that. It's kind of just, it's that challenge again. Like that fourth Olympic games. I mean, I, when she first asked me to come back, I had to get on a phone call with her. Cause I'm like, I don't think you understand what you're asking. Like this was in six months before the 2018 Olympics. So this is like August of 2017. I hadn't done any training for three and a half years since the Sochi Olympics. I hadn't been to the gym it wasn't training. The only time I'd been to the gym was to rehab a second hip surgery that I'd had. So the second hip surgery that I unfortunately rehabbed like a normal person and not like an athlete. So, you know, I was like, I don't know if my hip can even handle this. And I had just turned 39 years old. So I was like, I don't even know if what you're asking me is you're asking me based on what you remember me being, you know, three and a half years ago. And she's like, Uh, don't worry. She goes, didn't you just sprain your back in the spring? Because I know you went to go see the therapist, like you flew to Calgary to see our therapist. And so I talked to him about it and he says, oh, you'd be fine. And I'm like, oh, (laughs) that's great. So here I am like kind of using my physical state and not knowing if I could, you know, be as powerful or as explosive or fast or whatever. And the therapist is like, no, man, as long as we can keep her in alignment, no, she'll, she'll be, she's fine. So I'm like, oh, okay. I don't even have that. To you fall back on. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's funny.
1: Yeah. I was just doing the math in my head there. You're like, what, 44 then now?
0: 45. Yeah. I'm... 45. Like I th-
1: I honestly I thought you were in your 30s. <laughs> oh, oh, God bless
0: you. Um, you <laughs> so I mean, so
1: sweet. For the audience, like honestly, you have gotta be you're a genetic anomaly almost. Like it it is it's the athleticism that you possess it is is pretty wild. And in your book, it's funny because you tell a story in your book about Mr. Mr. Turtle.
0: Turtle. Yeah. My coach in high school.
1: After like the awards, the final year in high school and all your awards and you like explain how you walk into his office and you've got like a bucket load of MVP awards and all this kind of stuff. And it was, I just kind of giggled when I read that going, yeah, I could see that.
0: Yeah. But his response to that, he's just kind of with a shake of his head. And it was kind of just like, oh, Heather, you have so much potential. And in my head, I'm like, that's kind of a weird thing to say. Like, why is he being so weird about this? And I don't even know how to respond. How do you respond to that? And I'm like, OK, OK, see ya. And I was just like about to leave the office. And he said, no, Heather, I don't think you understand. Potential is just talent you don't have yet. And I was like, Bleh. like, at the time, I don't think it hit me at all. But all of a sudden, when I started bobsledding, and this is years later, like, I didn't start bobsledding until I was 27.
1: Yeah, you said it was like 10 years almost in the, in the book, I think you mentioned.
0: Yeah, it was, I started bobsledding just after I turned 27 and his voice came back and it was all about this potential and this untapped potential. And I had avoided lifting weights my whole life until 27. And it was a really sticky, like a sticking point for me. It was almost something that, you know, made me not want to do bobsledding. And I just was like, okay, I if I'm gonna do this, I need to leave it all on the table. And it was all about this potential, like what potential do I have? And I don't know where this voice came from out of nowhere. This situation from ten years earlier, he he had a very profound impact on my outlook on how I was, you know, moving forward with that. So it was is it was pretty crazy.
1: A couple of things that actually I'd like to chat about, but I did want to ask you about that piece in the book. So it's. Kind of interesting that it came up this early, but what level of impact that was? Because there's a lot of, I mean, there's well, everyone has certain potential in them for something, and you know, they either can't see it or they don't harness it. Or so, I'd love to chat about that. And I, but I, and I also want to just we can do whichever one you want first. And you had mentioned earlier in regards to working with the the rookie in the in your fourth Olympics. And about dealing with the pressure and being the athlete that's going to come in and and use the experience, cope with pressure, because I think that's a really, I think it's interesting in a lot of ways. One, it's just interesting at the level of the Olympic level and the competitiveness and the pressure in that moment of competing, because I think it relates to everyday life when, you know, whether you're, it doesn't matter what career you're in or what business you own, uh, there is always points and th- that you have to kind of be able to deal with the pressure and, and, and you, th- you deal with this in your book. And I, I, I just like, I'd love to have a conversation about it. There's a million things that I want to talk to you about, but let's, we can start on those two and, and we'll see where it goes.
0: Perfect. Okay. So talking about the untapped potential piece or the, the piece that, you know, Mr. Turtle kind of drilled into my brain without him even realizing it. It's a really big piece for me, and I think that a lot of times this untapped potential it comes from different places and different sources, I guess. And some of it, right now, a lot of the clients I'm working with are clients who outwardly seem very successful, and they are very successful, uh, but are something is missing. They're not feeling overly fulfilled, or they're not happy, or something's. They just feel like something's missing, or that life has passed them by, and. A lot of times when I've looked at the whole scenario of a lot of people, most people are on autopilot in their lives, and most people are just making decisions based on momentum and if something's taking them somewhere and they get an accolade because they're good at it, they like that feeling so they go in that direction and it's not so much the activity themselves it's it's where the accolades are leading them, where the praise is leading them, where the the autopilot's leaving them and This autopilot, I mean, we feel like we're so autonomous and making all these decisions on our own, but we're still making our choices within these boundaries of our direct exposures and our environments. And so I was making my decisions. People in my family, everyone, including my grandparents, had been to university. So me going to university was just in my boundary, it was in my lane. It was kind of just what was going to happen without even thinking about it. I didn't question it, I didn't, you know, I didn't. Wonder if there were any other options. I didn't. It was just kind of what was going to happen. And so a lot of times we're just in whatever is dictated to us based on society, but mostly our immediate environments. And what we pursue is what we have been exposed to and knowing for sure that that's possible. So if your parent was a doctor, then you know it's possible to be a doctor. If your uncle was a, I don't know, an astronaut, then you could probably go and become an astronaut. If you're Auntie is an Olympic gold medalist, then, you know, at least going to the Olympics is an option and even doing well in it is an option. So it, it's whatever is in your environment, which is probably why I never started pursuing sports or lifting weights. Like and taking sports seriously until I was 27, because I didn't grow up with people around me training to go to the Olympics. Like Olympians were TV people. They were not everyday normal people. Like I considered myself to be.
1: They weren't you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's not that I said, oh, I could never do that. It's that it didn't occur to me as being an option. Like I I just was like, well, I'm just, I'm going to get a master's degree. I'm going to be an occupational therapist. I'm going to still live a, you know, relatively successful life, like by all accounts, but just within my lane, you know, and I also grew up in an academic family, which is why pursuing that academic career was just The norm, you know, it was just going with the flow. I wasn't breaking free from anything. So that's kind of why, even at university, I played three varsity sports at university and it still never occurred to me to pursue anything else. I didn't even know we had a national women's rugby team until I played in a tournament and I was suddenly scouted and selected to go to a national camp. And I was like, we have a national women's rugby team. Like I I didn't even know we had a national women's rugby team. And it was the same thing as being inducted into the World Rugby Hall of Fame. I didn't know there was a World Rugby Hall of Fame. So I feel very fortunate in a way that coming at it at such an, well, at an older age, I guess, 27, kind of starting this thing, I was able to make value-based decisions. I was able to look at things from a different point of view and not feel pressured into doing things the way that all these other athletes had done it or be pressured to move to somewhere that I really didn't want to go or do and make decisions based on life and not just this kind of momentum and pressure of doing things a certain way. And I feel very fortunate about that. And I just, that whole experience has afforded me a very, very different and unique perspective that I've been able to share with parents. I mean, I'm not a parent, I'm a kick-ass auntie, but I'm not a parent. But I get parenting questions a lot because they are parenting athletes they're parenting kids who are in sports and they're they're wanting their kids some of them are wanting them just to be happy and some of them are based on questions are very clearly wanting their kids to be most you know, successful and sometimes I cringe when I hear a question knowing that or having a very keen sense that the goal is more the parents' goal than the goal of, of the child and you know I try and redirect and reframe and you know, that sort of thing. But it's just, it's just been very, very interesting. But that potential, our potential is often limited by our environments and our, and our direct exposures. Our potential is also limited by self-sabotage. So self-sabotage is a big, big, big one. And it is, I've kind of, I guess, narrowed the self-sabotage down into assumptions, self-limiting beliefs and fears. All of those kind of accumulate into whatever array of excuses we want, but they kind of boil down to assumptions, self-limiting beliefs and fears. We make so many assumptions on a daily basis. We make the assumptions that, you know, oh, that person, I'm not their type or I'm not qualified enough. Well, how do you, like maybe nobody else applied. We're just selling ourselves short by applying these assumptions without actually challenging them. Our self-limiting beliefs are rooted in stories that May have been true when we were younger, but also may not have been true. And we've been telling ourselves that, or someone else told us that. And it's just been this voice in our head forever that we can't do something, that we're not that kind of person, whatever these limited, limited beliefs that we hold. And those need to be challenged. And then the fear that we have is actually not the fear of failure, it's the fear of what we assume failure will bring. And when that boils down to it, it is, and again, that's an assumption, what we assume. Failure is going to bring, and it is ridicule, rejection, isolation, judgment. The biggest thing we fear most of all is the judgment of other people, and it is not even so much failure that brings on that judgment. Sometimes, it's even the pursuit of something that we're worried will have a impact from other people. Like if someone hears that you're trying to pursue to be this, you know, next level. Author or podcaster or whatever, like whoever you tell that to, or you may not even want to pursue it in fear of what we, people will say about you and what what how they will judge you for even trying or thinking you're that good. And that was something that stopped me in my tracks a lot. Having grown up in a small town, it was that judgment because I overheard someone in high school, someone I was you know hanging out with. We were waiting for the bell to ring, and I hear this girl. Saying to us, referring to someone else in the corner, saying, Look at her, she thinks she's so much better than everyone else. And that girl was just minding her own business, showing like a dance move to her friend. And that comment didn't affect her because she didn't hear it. But I somehow absorbed that without even realizing it. And so from then on, I downplayed everything. I downplayed my sporting abilities. I downplayed, like, yeah, I played my ass off on the field, but I certainly wasn't showing up early. I certainly wasn't staying later and I certainly wasn't doing anything extra. And I certainly wasn't, you know, going and training to try and be better at my sport. Every sport I played was just for fun. And I used the excuse that doing any extra training or lifting weights would make it a job. It would, you know, turn it into work. And I'm just here to have fun and social.
1: And And that's the story you told yourself.
0: Exactly. Yeah. No, it makes sense. It wasn't until later when it actually boiled down to me realizing that I was doing that almost self-preservation. Um, I self-sabotaged for sure, but it was in a self-preservation mode where I didn't want to be judged for thinking I was better than anyone else. It's still a battle. It's still an internal voice that I, I fight for now. I, I fight with to try and correct and try and reframe and, and that sort of thing. And those, those kind of stories stay, stay with us
1: for sure. They do. And I would love for you to repeat that quote because when I read it, I was like, okay, that's, you know, people will, you know, often say when you talk about being afraid to fail, I'm not afraid to fail, but you succinctly like that quote was really hit me. So I would love for you to repeat it to the audience so that they get it to really think about what they believe is going to happen. If you could repeat that quote, I think it would be super powerful.
0: It's not actually failure that we fear. It is what we assume failure will bring. And that is potentially, for example, like if if you've only ever received or felt like you've received love or affection from a parent only when you've done well, then you may not actually try something because if you fail, then you may get a negative reaction from a parent. Like you may just have been taught that that failing will bring on negative consequences or whatever. And so those are the kind of things that we internalize, but they are... These assumptions that we've held on to or we assume that we're going to be judged by people or we assume that we're going to get a negative reaction. Some of those assumptions may be true, but some of them may just be things that we are holding on to that are definitely holding us back. So unless so part of my um, when I'm working with people, it is any assumptions, any assumptions. If you can catch yourself, like call yourself out and just say, are you sure? Is it true? Like, are you sure? So, really? Yeah. Like, are you, are you really sure? Like, did that really happen? It can come in any everyday scenario. It, I mean, it happened with a story with my, my parents, with a bucket list trip they wanted to take. And it just me just asking those questions, like, she's like, oh, it's sold out. Or it's too late. Are you sure? It's sold. It would be sold out by now. Are you sure? Well, Heather, it's a big deal. Like, it would be sold. Mom, are you sure? Like, did you check? Well, No. Well, we checked and it was still available. And like this whole, you know, all of these things and assuming, well, it'd be more fun to go with someone, you know, another couple. Well, why don't you go with your aunt and uncle, like my aunt and uncle, your sister and brother-in-law, they'd be, they'd be so fun, but they can't go this year. Are you sure? Sure. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they're doing their big trip across the Northern Passage. Oh my gosh, they're doing that over the Christmas holidays. No, they're doing that in the fall, but they're not going to want to take two big trips in a year. Are you sure? Sure. Like, did you you didn't ask them because this just happened right now. So we called and they ended up going like it was we just we stop ourselves from these things before we even let them unfold, before we give them even a chance. So that self-sabotage helps prevents people from going from this having this dream or this thought in the back of their head to it prevents them from going from dreaming to planning. And it also there's some people make it to the planning phase and they have all these really great plans, but they never pursue it. And again, the same self-sabotage prevents you from going from that planning phase to the actual pursuing phase. And then it's the self-sabotage rears its ugly head again within the pursuing phase when you get confronted with actual external obstacles, like the internal obstacles is our self-sabotage. The external obstacles would be like injuries or a financial crisis or a pandemic or, you know, getting fired or whatever, all these external challenges that we have. And that, again, is, could be our self-sabotage, assuming that we can't overcome it, or self-limiting beliefs saying that we can't overcome it, or, oh my gosh, who am I to think that I can actually overcome? Like, self-sabotage can do that, but those are the obstacles that we at least want to be able to physically feel like we can challenge, but we have to get through our self-sabotage in all those steps before we even start pursuing the goals that we really want.
1: So a couple of questions on that. And I want to get back to the rugby. What, rugby was one of the things I wanted to bring up, but I, I don't want to. I don't want to leave this because I think it's very powerful. And I'm really curious uh, what you did through your experiences. I'm just going to kind of sum up what I think I heard, and then you could correct me if I'm wrong in any of these areas. But really, you talked about being on autopilot, and and that you know we're a prone to our environment. You know, it's, and it's funny that you say, it's like, I know so many professional hockey players that their sons are professional hockey players or football players. And it's, and you just, it's amazing to see, like, you know, once you pointed that out, it was, it's like, it's so true. It's so predominant. And I think that in this day and age with technology being such an influence on what will happen in the future, there are going to be a lot of jobs. A lot of businesses, a lot of careers that are going to be needed to, people are going to have to change their psychology and they're going to have to change exactly what you're talking about, which is that self-sabotage. And I think you pointed out the two pieces that I picked up were fear and limiting beliefs. And to me, like I'll, I throw that kind of in a bit of a bucket of like the need to innovate, really trying to recreate that compelling future, if you will and being able to innovate it. And these are like the things that you're talking about. And I think it's super, super powerful. And I think it's going to be even more powerful because of technology. Because we've got like, a, I don't know how many people I know, how many young people I know that I've met who, you know, it's like, well, what are you going to school for? Well, I'm going to school to be a teacher. Oh, really? What drove you to that? Well, you know, my mom's a teacher, my dad's a teacher or whatever. And it's like, you know, it's kind of like what we did. And, and, and then, well, is teaching going to be what you saw what teaching has been for the last 40 years for your parents or 30 years or whatever it's been and what it will be in the next 20 years are probably going to be two completely different things. And I always say to, you know, people who are going to school to be a teacher, I'm like, I hope you're taking technology courses. Yeah. That's what that, that job's going to probably turn into. So, and I, I, you know, not to get onto that topic, but, but I do think your core context of you know, these, this self-sabotage, this fear, this limiting beliefs. And then I love what you kind of put together on the three pieces of dream, plan, and pursue. And so could you share some of the tools and the and the specifics about how you kind of overcame You know, the practice of that, like it's, you know, it's one thing to go, okay, yeah, maybe I have a fear, maybe I have a limiting belief, but what do you do about it when you have, when you realize you have it? And so was there a time in your past where you looked and went, yeah, you know, I I have to like strategize or plan and then pursue the action to overcome those limiting beliefs?
0: So I'm very fortunate, me going to the dreaming, to the pursuing phase, the kind of getting past the voice of, look at her, she thinks she's so much better than anyone else, like that, that kind of voice, like, who do I think I am? Like, who am I to be able to accomplish this or even to pursue this? That all kind of evolved later, obviously, like I said, at 27. And I think, to be honest, that it helped me because the goal was so big that I don't know that I was even necessarily expecting that I was going to make it. It was just that it was a challenge and I challenged myself, which is another thing I want to talk about. I hope we're not going to jump all over the place. When I'm working with people, we kind of draw out what their goals are, what they really want to achieve, what they want to achieve, not what they think they're supposed to be achieving, but what they really want to achieve. But we actually pick an even bigger goal, like what would be bigger and better than that, regardless of what it is, if it seems implausible or lofty or whatever those words are that people kind of throw out there. It is challenging yourself, setting that goal, not as a binary outcome. So instead of it being a binary outcome where you've either succeeded or you've failed, that's literally your two options. You either achieve your goal or you don't. Instead of doing that, because if a goal is so big, if if it's something you really, really, really want to do, like if you want to be the number one podcaster on the planet, that's awesome. That's great. So you know, for someone starting out, I mean, you're already very established, but for someone starting out, they might be like, that's never going to happen. So when they look at that as a goal, the likelihood of them achieving that is probably not so high. So they're less likely to pursue it if those are the only two options they have. Whereas if they set an, a goal as a spectrum and they look at that saying, yeah, well, that might be, yeah, it's probably unlikely. I just sure as hell want to see how close I can get you've kind of gamified it, you've set a challenge. And almost like every time you come up with a roadblock saying, yeah, but I just, I just want to see how close I can get to that. So how can I do that? It doesn't become this, this thing where all of a sudden, if you had it set as a binary outcome, then this thing comes and blocks you and you're like, see, See, this is like I knew this was gonna happen and that's why I can't do it. Whereas if it's a challenge, if you've set it as a spectrum and a challenge, then all you're doing is just challenging yourself to see can you get past this? Like how close can you actually get? Like how far can you go? That how close can I get? That that statement is not only good for for that and for kind of getting past those things to see, you know, to achieve your goal, to get close to your goal. The thing is, the closer you get, the more you, you're like, oh my gosh, maybe it is real. Like maybe this can happen like the closer you get, it's just that you have to get on that. Like you have to get on the spectrum in order to kind of overcome these things and be like, oh my gosh, maybe it is possible. Or oh my God, maybe I actually will be top five in the world. Like, is that shitty? No, like, like okay, it's, this is the thing we're limiting ourselves because of a yes or no or a success or failure binary outcome outlook. That comment, though, getting back to that comment, how close can I get? That is also really important because it also disempowers the naysayers and re-empowers us. No matter what your goal is, there are going to be people who are like, really, like you really think you're going to achieve that? Or like we all know the comments or the eye rolls or the those all those things. Right. And you're even that like, oh, who do you think you are? Like that comment. And whether it's from somebody else or whether it's your own inner demon voice saying that, all you have to do is say, you know what? I might not get there, but I just want to see how close I can get. Then they have nothing else to say. There is nothing else to say. You've acknowledged the fact that not achieving that big goal is a possibility. And you're okay with that, that you have just decided that you just want to, you know, I just want to see how close I can get to that. I want to see how close I can get. Yeah, I'm sure I might not be able to go to the Olympics. I just had hip surgery yesterday, but I'm going to try. I just want to see how close I can get. Or whatever. It's a very, very easy statement to either say to someone else, to say to yourself, or whatever. And it disempowers and quiets those voices and it re empowers you to pursue something that you actually really want to pursue.
1: And was this a technique that you legit actually tried yourself in the beginning? Like, because you just mentioned about the hip surgery five months before you went to the Olympics.
0: Not five months. I started bobsledding five months before my first one. the The hip surgery was nine was seven months before I had to be on the rugby field for the rugby World Cup, and nine months before I had to qualify for the national team for the bobsledding. Yeah.
1: Oh, just that.
0: Yeah, just wanted to be clear. <laughs> but, five but, months.
1: Is- <laughs> thank you, but honestly, like that's insane. Say- <laughs> but it's insane, like really. But thank you for clarifying because I didn't. I sorry, I, I missed that when I heard it. But but it, it it's insane. Uh, that just to, for me to even get, comprehend that, I'm like, holy shit. Like, you know, I mean, I, I would, I'm not an athlete. I'm not like a competitive athlete like you were, but I see myself, I certainly have an, an athlete, athlete identity yes. along with a bunch of identi- other identities that I own for myself. But one, and I just can't think like, holy shit, it must've been unbelievable. D- did you really utilize that process or is that something you learned through the process I'm I'm just out of curiosity.
0: I'll tell you that in a second. But you said you just just because you touched on the word identity, the comment of who, who am I to think that I whatever, that is all based on your how you identify yourself, your identity, how you identify yourself, but also how you think that other people see you. And so identity, the words you use to identify yourself are also part of self, can can be part of self sabotage they oh, they can also be empowering cuz i'm a kind of i'm the kind of person who does this as opposed to people like me don't do that you've just literally put yourself in a box and you've you have um, limited your potential like you have literally squashed your potential based on putting yourself in a box so i just wanted to touch on that
1: no it's huge thank you for that because and and it, this is i think important for the listeners to to hear because the most significant force in the human psychology is to remain congruent with how you identify yourself. And that is such a critical piece because if people are struggling, you know, you can literally go to your identity and and how you see yourself is, is critical. And um, Stephen Covey years ago had a, a way that he would, well, he used to call them roles, not identities, but he used to teach a process where if you want to create a new identity, a big part of, or new role is how he used to teach it, but is writing your eulogy, forecast your eulogy in whatever area. So as a father, what would I want my children to say? What would I want my wife to say? What would I want my business partners or my employees to say? What would I want my friends to say? And you really drill down and create that identity or that eulogy about hey I would want them to say this I would want them to say that and get very clear on that and that's a great way to begin to shift and readjust your identity so yeah I, thank you for making acknowledging that because I think it's it's a huge piece for people
0: yeah Todd Herman also wrote a book it is definitely about identity and it's about stepping into like stepping into an identity to fulfill it's almost like a fake it till you make it kind of thing but you're pulling pieces of someone else's identity whom you admire and you're adopting those. And then after a while you realize that is who you are now. You're not pretending to be this person, but this is, you kind of step into this. So it's, it's a very, identity is a huge.
1: Yeah. Is that alter ego? Alter
0: ego. That's right. I was like going to say ego, but I'm like, I don't know. It's not just ego alter ego. Yeah. Yeah. It's phenomenal.
1: Let's flip back to, did you use that process or is it a process that you developed through
0: It is a process that I stumbled on in rugby. And I realized that I was going through a really, really hard time because I'll I'll paint the picture. I'll kind of put myself in in it after winning in Vancouver in 2010. So I had competed. So dialing back a little bit, the Rugby World Cup of 15s is always at the end of the summer of the same year right after we've just done the Winter Olympics. So it's always the same year. So every four years. It's double whammy Olympics and for bobsledding and rugby in the same year. So that's what I did in 2006. And then in 2006 uh, for rugby, I was the leading try scorer at the Rugby World Cup. And then four years later, I am back at, and then we won in Vancouver for bobsledding because I was away that whole year. And I had, I think I'd broken my shoulder the year before. So I didn't play rugby the whole summer before. Anyway, it was crazy. So I hadn't been with the rugby program for a little bit. And then after the Olympics in February 2010, I went back and I missed the tours during the winter because I was gone for bobsledding and went to a rugby camp, like a training camp in the spring. And then it was kind of a training camp slash tryout slash had a couple of kind of test matches against the United States to see where people were at and everything. So it was a very weird position to be in coming back into a team sport where most of these girls had been training together for the last few years, like on and off pretty much, but pretty consistently for the last few years. And I was coming in and potentially, you know, taking someone's spot. I mean, I did the same with bobsledding and I mean, that's what sport is, but it still doesn't feel great being that person coming in. Well, at least not for me, for some people, they may be like, yeah, I just walked it like whatever. I don't know. But for me, it was very hard to realize that I was taking someone's spot who had, who had been there anyway. And there were a few people on the team people with whom I hadn't played before and they weren't making it exactly easy because I was maybe taking their friend spot, someone that they had gotten close with for a while. And, you know, they believed in that that person was loyal and committed to the team and I apparently wasn't. And
1: you're the unknown and you're the, yeah. Yeah.
0: So anyway, I ended up scoring a couple few tries against the United States in those games and and all these things. But all of a sudden we, and then we had another Tournament in the summer or training camp in the summer, and then I went to the World Cup. Like I went to the World Cup, and this time it was in England. And we're on a bus, and I was paying no attention to social media. wasn't as big back then, but it was, it was coming, and there were chat rooms and all of these different things apparently. And there was a girl on the team who I think thought that she was doing me a favor or being nice. I'm not sure, but she basically said, "Oh, Heather, about those chat rooms, uh, don't worry, I defended you." And I was like. What are you talking about? It's a rugby forum getting ready for the World Cup and they're debating whether or not you should be on the team. <laughs> I'm like, "Okay, great. We're like we're we're here. We're in England right now. We're <laughs> the tournament starts next week." Thanks for that. That's awesome. So, of course, like even the fact that she defended me all of a sudden there's this seed of doubt in my brain like, you know, our some people are just like, well, she hasn't been played for the last couple of years. And someone's like, she was the leading try scorer four years ago. And someone's like, yeah, that was four years ago. How do we know she's still good? And then someone else piped up, well, she just scored against the States twice. And like, so, but it was this back and forth. She shouldn't be there just because she won a gold medal for bobsled. Like it was all just like, I'm like, oh my gosh, like what if I am only here for media because I just won in Vancouver? All of these things start flying around in my brain. Makes sense. And of course I'm there. And I'm, the next day I'm doing an interview with Total Rugby, which is a rugby TV channel show over big in the UK. And so they're coming and they're filming the trainings and they're doing all this stuff and they're doing this interview. And I've got these comments in the back of my brain. And it wasn't until in the middle of the interview when it just came out, it literally came out. And I just said, you know what? Like the fact that I acknowledged out loud in this interview, that I had my own doubts about whether I should be there or not. I said, I, there, you know, there are people out there who are questioning whether I should be here. And I said, and they're not thinking anything that I haven't thought myself, but I
1: have to trust
0: that I'm here for a reason and whether that's being the best water girl on the team.
1: You said that in the interview?
0: Yeah. I said, well, that's what my role is. Or I said, if, if, if I actually get the privilege of stepping out on that field, then I will try and do the job my job, the best that I can, that I can do, but I have to at least trust that the coaches saw a purpose and a reason for me being here for whatever that is. And so I can't even remember how it was framed and all that stuff, but it was from that point on that I realized how, how impactful and detrimental naysayers can be and how they can really, because again, like I said, leading up to it, social media wasn't that big. And I didn't grow up with naysayers in my family. Very fortunate to not have had naysayers in my family. It was a very new, all of a sudden, like, I'm like, oh my God, what, like, where's all this doubt and this craziness coming from? And so it was at that point when I realized being like, yeah, I might not do that, but to acknowledge the fact that I might not get on the field or that I might not be the best or that I might not be whatever. But I'm here for a reason or I'm, I'm owning this journey and I'm owning this whatever. I found that very powerful. And then so when I was working with clients, we kind of came up with this thing being like, you know what? Yeah, I might not get there. I might not get there. I might not recover from hip surgery. I might not be able to get my book published. I might not be able to do whatever. But you know what? I just want to see how close I can get. And that's it. And so disempowers the naysayers, reempowers you to do something that you want to do that you actually are pursuing because you want to do it.
1: Yeah, it doesn't mean you're trying any less. No. I like the idea of it. Uh, sorry, I have one quick quick question. How many tries did you score over in England? Like, really the lead try score? I was. <laughs> Does that not, at some level, do you not feel like, to the naysayers, like, up yours? Um, <laughs> you probably don't. But...
0: I don't say up yours, but I do, I do have to say that there is a comfort in proving people wrong. Oh, that's a- I find that by doing that, maybe it's making people rethink what's possible. Like, why are you so quick to put limitations on what people are, are able to do? I think that's why I was partly enjoyed going back to the Olympics when I was 39, after not training for three and a half years and having two hip surgeries and whatever. It's just not being like, ha I did it. But also we talk about representation, right? So I'm just like, I'm 39. I'm just don't sell yourself short. Don't just stop doing something or don't try something because you're 39 or because you're 45 or because you're 27. I had a woman come up to me after one of my speaking engagements and she said, you started when you were 27. She goes, I'm 27 now. And I,
1: And I feel old.
0: Well, she was basically like, I put one of my dreams on the shelf a long time ago. And she goes, and I don't know why I did that. And now I'm like, I'm going to dust it off. And I'm like, go dust it off. Who knows? Who knows whether you'll make it or not? But just like, if it's something you wanted to do, do it. That's kind of been the best part about my story or my journey is being able to show people that there are one other ways of doing something. It doesn't have to be done the way that it's always been done before. But also just, I just don't want people to sell themselves short. I feel like that is my reason for being.
1: It's your purpose. Yeah,
0: just don't sell yourself short.
1: Your book is like perfectly titled, you know, Redefining Realistic. Or in my head, it's like your whole life has been about redefining the limits, you know, to be able to go to the Olympics at 39 and do all those things. And it's wildly impressive. And you do it without ego, which we're going to get into later because I have some questions about that. You really do. You really, really, really do it without ego. And
0: Part of that's my parents, though. Part of that's my, par- my parents. Uh, my mom told me a long time ago, I think it was after maybe my first school medal, I don't remember, but she kind of made a point and she said, just so you know, if I ever think you're getting too big for your britches, doesn't matter how old you are, I'll still find a way to ground you. Good for them. Oh, gosh, yes.
1: We don't have enough parents that are doing that kind of stuff nowadays. So, in my opinion,
0: you're right. I feel that in some ways there are some things that parents could be doing, but I also think that they're growing up in a time that has very different challenges. Oh yeah. Then yeah, it's not an easy.
1: Yeah. No, it's not I'm an not, easy I, thing. and I'm not making a judgment about parents. Actually, Tanil and I just talked about this the other day about whether we were too soft with kids or too hard in some areas, too soft in other areas, and. And being a parent is so difficult, especially now with and and my kids are you know 18 and 22. So soon to be 19. I, I can't imagine doing it now. It'd be even more difficult. You mentioned something earlier that I just kind of loved. You had mentioned when you were talking about goals, you said you used the words gamify your goals. Mm. And I really love, and I don't know if that's how you typically kind of use use that phrase it made me think about as you said it I was like wow that is such an interesting phrase regarding goals because you know talking about kids nowadays you know they get into online gaming or or you know just gaming you know if you told them you're going to fail and die (laughs) 67,000 times in this game yeah they'd probably be like fuck I'm not playing that game and yet in life, they struggle to kind of gamify their life, if they will, going, exactly. hey, I can go in here and I can try one, two, three, 20, 50, 100 times and fail, which is what they're doing every day. But they don't translate that to their life. And that was my takeaway when you had said gamify your goals?
0: That's a hundred percent how I meant that because I I actually used this concept in a keynote I did at the end of last year. I brought in this concept of gamifying your goals. And it is the whole point is when you're playing a video game, like whether you, whether you're a gamer or not, everybody kind of knows the concept of video games. The whole point is to get to the next level and then to somehow get to the next level and somehow get to the next level. And You've got however many tries and when you die off, are you just like never playing the game again or are you going to try it again? Well, most people are trying it again. And this time they'll pick different armor, they'll pick a different car, they'll pick different ammunition or they'll pick a different route. They'll strategize a different route to get there. Instead of going over, they'll try under. Instead of going through the mountains, they'll go swim underwater and they'll try something different next time, even though their goal is the same. They'll try a different way of getting there. And that is the whole point. Why are we giving up so easily on things that are actually important to us? Or are they important to us? And maybe that's the question. Maybe we're pursuing things because we think we're supposed to pursue them. But for the things that are really important to us, if you gamify it, if it doesn't work the first time, try it a different way. Try using a different tool. Try getting a different resource. It's so applicable to our lives in terms of, taking things whether it's our life, our business, whatever, taking things to the next level. And then you do the same thing again. I'm going to try and take things to another level and it's you use the same process. Like you try and you try again and you try with different tools and you go and educate yourself and get a different skill and you maneuver and you you make your way up and it's a phenomenal like comparison.
1: And it circles back to what you were talking about earlier. You didn't say product of our environment, but you make decisions based on the environment that you're in. And so, you know, you become a pipe fitter, teacher, whatever, whatever it is, uh, entrepreneur, like I, I kind of did it. My, that's what my dad owned his own business. My mom and dad owned their own business. I own my own business. They were in business together as husband and wife. I'm in business with my wife. Mm-hmm. You know, I was in business with my ex-wife. I never really thought about that. Like, oh, I'm going to be on the couch, couch of some psychologist tomorrow. <laughs> so, but, but it's true. I mean, it's a great takeaway and I hope, I hope the audience. And that'd be a great point for parents who are listening to this, which obviously we have a lot of parents, but when you're dealing with your kids, like gamify their goals. It's a, it's actually outstanding. One of the things I would say about your book was I, I felt like that you took it down into these three sections. I wasn't going to go here, but you were like, I think it's shift your perspective, seize your potential. And, own, your own your story. story. Yeah, yeah, own your story. And I just thought, oh, you, you could have written three books there.
0: I know. And actually, that's what the publisher told me too. And I was just like, but each section, and I think that may be a possibility down the road to actually extrapolate and expand on each section of the book or in some way, because I do feel like the more I've gone into coaching and the more research I've done and whatever, there is so much to expand on on each section. But I felt like that was. The only book I was ever going to write. So for me, I was like, oh my gosh, how do I get it all in here? And I also, it was probably, if I'm really taking a hard look at it, it was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. Like I've climbed the highest mountain in Antarctica, I have two Olympic gold medals, World Drug Hall of Fame, but writing that book was probably the hardest thing I've ever done because. I wanted to balance I didn't want to write an autobiography and I wanted it to be something that was going to be transformational, help people like a personal professional development book. but I also knew that because of my career, my sports career, that there were some people out there who wanted the autobiography, who wanted the sports stuff or who wanted the a bit of behind the scenes to figure out whatever so it was a really interesting challenge to Be pulling in stories, like stories of my journey and of my overcoming challenges, and putting them in the book in places, even though the stories weren't chronological. So the stories had to be told in a way that didn't rely on a previous story that was actually being told later at the end of the book. And so it had to kind of be done in a way that fit with the messaging. The stories I told were only stories to highlight the messages that I thought would help people take things to the next level or discover what they're truly capable of. So that was the point. But you're you're absolutely right. It's uh there's a lot in there.
1: Honestly, I would encourage you to go back and and like dig in deeper in some of these things uh because it was such good content and I would encourage, well, I'm using the word encourage, I formally say I would encourage people to buy your book. Oh, that's very sweet. Because it's really good and I mean, you have a fascinating life. Like it's, it's really crazy (laughs) what you've accomplished. As I was reading it, it was like harnessing potential was cut would be kind of one of the big things that hit me. Well, it's a great book for anybody to read, first of all, but especially if you're stuck and you're, you know, you really need that, not pump up, but like just context to really you know, your life, your story, what you have to say inside the book about mindset and limiting beliefs and facing adversity and, uh, you know, embracing challenge. It's like you've kind of got it all in there and it, it's mindful and healthy book for people to, to read.
0: That means a lot, Dwayne.
1: Shit, I'm almost about here to cry. <laughs> like you're doing like really cool stuff for people.
0: Thank you. That means the world to me.
1: And you're such a symbol for women. I was actually thinking, as you were talking earlier, I was like, you know what I need to do? It was one thing you've kind of inspired me to do is, and I I don't know, I'll have to check with Heather, not you, Heather, or Heather, our producer, (laughs) but I would love to have a panel of like, you know, powerful women on the podcast. You know, so far I've been able to do a podcast with every third episode is a, is a woman. I know more guys than I know women, but, and everybody is like somebody I know. You know, I've never reached out. I've got a bit of a fear of putting somebody on the podcast that I don't know. Uh, you know, just because uh, yeah, that authenticity and integrity and is kind of the biggest thing. And I'm not. I don't monetize this podcast. Like, I'm not here to make money. I don't sell advertising on it. I, I really want to affect people's lives. All uh, right, sorry. I'm not affecting people's lives, but I'm bringing people to the forefront.
0: You are. That is the big part. Without you, our messages wouldn't be heard by your followers. So you are affecting people's lives big time.
1: Yeah. And I think it's, it really relates with you too, because like, you know, as you said earlier in the podcast, it's like, you know, you saw yourself as just like, well, uh, being an Olympian is for somebody else.
0: Those are TV people.
1: Yeah. Those are TV people. Those are, those are like, like real athletes, like the Tom Brady's of of the world. And, and it's like, I'm not that guy or I'm not that girl. And Like that's one of the kind of theories of of the podcast is to bring people who are just still grinding it out every single day. I think it's awesome. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to part one of our interview with Heather Moise. What a fantastic woman. And uh, we spoke for over two hours. So we're breaking this into a two-part series. And we would love to invite you back next Wednesday for part two to hear more about her journey into the Hall of Fame, World Rugby Hall of Fame and how she uh, conducted that and just how she lives through possibilities. It's a even more fantastic second part of a conversation and uh, we're looking forward to you tuning in. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you being with us. If you found value in the show and know a friend or a coworker who could benefit from the conversation, please share the link via text or on social media. Remember, each share creates a ripple effect of knowledge and inspiration. We'll see you next week.
0: The views, information, or opinions expressed by guests during the Business of Doing Business podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Dwayne Kerrigan and his affiliates. Dwayne Kerrigan, or the Business of Doing Business podcast, is not responsible for and does not verify the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series. The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. Listeners are advised to consult with a qualified professional or specialist before making any decisions based on the content of this podcast.